Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, our reading today is from the book of Revelation, and we're reading chapter 3. We've come to the church in Sardis. We're doing a short series looking at seven letters, Christ's seven letters to seven churches. And here we are in Sardis this morning, Revelation chapter 3, just six verses to read together. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. What would things look like if Satan took control of a city? If the devil grabbed complete control of a city like ours, what would it look like? There was once a Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who gave an answer to that question on a radio broadcast many years ago. And the answer went like this. He said, if Satan took control of a city, all of the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled sweetly at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Isn't it a brilliant image? If Satan ruled the roost, churches like this would be full, not empty. But Jesus, the Lord Jesus of the church, would be absent, not present. If Satan ruled, everything would look great on the surface, full of life, but be rotten and dying underneath. And here's the thing. The city, the churches, the people would be sleepwalking into a lost eternity. We don't often think, do we, of full churches as a problem. We don't always measure things in the right way with the right criteria. So here we are together today. I hope you have in some form a Bible with you, a screen, an open book. And it's like as we read it, God in his word is is placing a stethoscope on our hearts. As we read, as we listen, as we hear it, God is listening to us, isn't he? Checking our vital signs, checking our pulse, 
listening to our heartbeat, taking our temperature. And as he's speaking to us, so he's listening. He's looking. Are we the church we seem? Are we a church without him? Am I a Christless Christian? What would that look like anyway? How would we know? I want to show us three things here this morning from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Three things. Number one, recognize the problem. Number two, receive the warning. And number three, realize the promise. Number one, recognize the problem. Recognize the problem. The church in Sardis has a problem. Can you see it? Chapter 3, verse 1, it is crystal clear, it is very simple, and it is truly terrible. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The problem is that Sardis looks like the kind of church that Satan wants in a city. It is full, it is flourishing, it is nice, it is respectable. What's the phrase here? You have the reputation of being alive, but actually dead, decaying and dying, soiled and sinful. The, the, the problem we have to recognize here is that Sardis has a reputation that has no basis in reality. A, a public face that is not the same as the facts beneath the surface. In name she is alive. It lights up the front of the church outside for all the world to see, but behind closed doors the truth is she is dead. Let me ask you, do you recognize this is a problem for churches? Do you recognize that it it could be, it, it might be one day a problem for us, for Trinity here in Aberdeen? It's very serious, isn't it? Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Reputation matters, doesn't it? Somebody I know has an infected finger at the minute. An an innocuous splinter entered the finger. They they thought they'd got it out, but some remain. Not all of it out. And infection has taken root. A small part of the body, but oh, the pain, the agony this person is in. And then ointment came along. The joy of the medication applied to the finger. The soothing ointment, precious ointment, life-giving ointment. A reputation can be like that. What one translation say, it says, a good name is better than fine perfume. And think of your fav- favorite fragrance filling a room. It fills a room with comfort and delight, doesn't it? Oh, it's beautiful. But what if that reputation turns out to be a hoax? A smokescreen, a facade, a cover. The, the reality underneath so different from the surface. I know that many of you, many of us watching will have seen the tragedy of the last few weeks of the ministry of Ravi Zacharias being revealed to be not what we thought it was on, on, on many different levels. 
The, the reputation for truth and honesty and uprightness and integrity, that, that, re, that, that reputation has come crashing down. And oh, friends, the mess, the pain, the heartache, the bad smell, the open wound. Because we didn't know the truth, we saw the reputation but not the reality. And when we come to know what Jesus knows and has knows all along, we are devastated. I know your works. I know. I know. You have the reputation of being alive. But I know you are dead. Somebody has put it like this. You can be a smashing success with people and a terrible failure with God. You can have the whole world know your name, but one day have to stand before God and introduce yourself to him. Friends, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. The same Lord Jesus who said to us, didn't he? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? What words does the Lord Jesus use here in verse 2? For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Mighty works, yes. Many works, yes. But not complete works. I know your works, says Jesus. And because of that, I don't know you. I know your works, but I do not know you. It's an awful thing, isn't it? To have, to have someone you think you know say to you, have we ever met before? I, I know the most lovely, godly pastor, the most wonderful man who just happens to be terrible with names. And he once had one of his children's teenage friends staying with him all weekend long. They came to visit with them the whole weekend. They had meals together, all the rest of it. And this friend came to church on Sunday, and after church, the pastor said to his own child's friend who'd spent the weekend with them, oh, oh, you must be new here. What's your name? Think of it. Someone you think you know, and they say to you, have we met? Brothers and sisters, having some vague connection to Jesus maybe growing up in a home where parents love Christ and us growing up around that. Maybe you've been in church for decades even. Having some vague connection to Jesus and actually knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus are not the same thing. Having a reputation for being alive is not the same thing as being alive. Can we see the problem? Point number one, recognize the problem. Simply recognize it. Oh, the website is slick. The midweek courses and the programs are interesting and varied. The the house groups are intimate and fun and full of food and fellowship. The preaching is powerful. The church is liked and respected by the city council. It gets a seat at the table. People want to know its opinion. The neighbors think highly of what the church does in the community. The smaller churches down the road look up to this flagship church in their city and they, 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 they kind of envy her. 
Everybody would say that she is flourishing, healthy, successful. And Jesus puts his stethoscope on this church's heart and listens to the heartbeat of a church like that. He puts his x-ray eyes on her vital signs and he says, terminal decline, not long left, last legs for this church, about to breathe her last Verse 2, about to die. Jesus recognizes the problem. It, it can exist the world over. Can you see it? Can I see it today? All we need to do today is for now just accept that it's possible, that it's a reality, that it, it could happen to us. Friends, please today, Learn to adopt criteria for assessing spiritual life that is is not connected to Instagram and is not connected to personalities or to money and to activity and to coolness and size and metrics and all the ways in which we use to assess health in all the other structures of the world. No, not in the church. It is not like that here. You know, Christopher Hitchens the famous atheist, he said, didn't he, something like, he said, the whole of Christianity is summed up in the pathetic image of the flock. The whole of Christianity is summed up in the pathetic image of the flock. And the moment Christian people say, no, we're not pathetic. No, no, we're, we're powerful. We're cool. We can be like you. No, he's right. Of course he's right. Never seek a reputation for anything other than that. Charles Spurgeon said, long ago I ceased to count heads. In other words, I ceased to be worried about numbers, for truth is usually in the minority in this evil world. Oh, church family today, my dear church family, reputation is little gauge of anything. If if there is no real spiritual life, no, no deep roots beneath the surface going down and down into Christ and his life-giving word and his spirit. So here's the second thing. Point number two, not just recognize the problem. Number two, receive the warning. Receive the warning. I want you to receive it this morning. Not, not, not from me, but from the Lord Jesus himself. Once you recognize the problem, that's one thing. That's a start. But don't just leave it there off to the side. Seeing the cancer will get you nowhere, will it? Unless you act on the instructions you're given about how to remove it. Wake up, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So it's a strange thing, isn't it, here? If you look at, look at the wording of those verses that I've just read, on the one hand, the Lord Jesus says, verse 1, categorically, you are dead. No ifs, no buts, no pulse, no life, dead. But then, verse 2, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Life support, still a pulse, not too late. And I think the way to understand stand this is that this language here of a dead and a dying church, it goes hand in hand with the language of a sleeping and a slumbering church. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. This is a sleeping church, a a slumbering church, a dozing church. And there is a kind of sleepy lifelessness that is, well, Jesus is saying that is like a kind of death, isn't there? See, here's how I'd put it in this church. This church is in between the first alarm and the 10-minute snooze alarm. Do you know that sort of wilderness period, those 10 minutes where... Not much happens, a little bit of life, but more sleep than life. You know what it's like? I know one family, not mentioning any names, of course, apart from the fact that I'm with them every single morning, uh, where where the, the routine goes like this. Dad comes into the bedroom and wakes all the kids up. It's the first alarm. And 10 minutes later, there are no vital signs present in the room, no signs of life, no movement. Dad is now downstairs at this time. Dad shouts up the stairs, time to get up, kids. More snoozing, no sign of life. A few minutes later, Dad's footsteps are heard going back up the stairs to the bedroom as he shouts again, wake up. And this time the voice comes back from under the duvet. I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. Ah, there's life. The child is breathing, he's conscious. But as dad enters the bedroom, the child is still in the bed. What what could the dad say, verse 2? What what words could he actually say, verse 2? Wake up and strengthen what remains for I have not found your getting up and actually being awake and living the day to the full complete in my sight. That, that, that's the sense of it, isn't it? That's the feel of it. Yeah, I, I know you're still breathing, but you're not really up, are you? My grandfather, uh, on, on my side of the family, an Ulster farmer, no, he had no concept of a lion. Some of you know people like, some of you are like this. Absolutely no concept of a lion. He'd never come across a lion in his life. He wouldn't know what to do with a lion if you laid it to him on a silk pillow in a luxury hotel for a free weekend. Would not know what to do with it. And he used to tell us, if he ever caught us in bed on a Saturday morning, I can hear the words ringing in my ears, get up, you're sleeping your life away. You're sleeping your life away. And sometimes the Lord Jesus comes to his church and has to warn his people, get up, you are sleeping your spiritual life away. Oh, oh, make no mistake, you're, you're still there on Sundays. Still logging in, clicking on the email. You're still breathing, great. Yes, good for you, well done, still breathing. But it's not really living, is it? What's happened here, verse 3, is that the Sardis church, look at the, the wording of it, the Sardis church has received the gospel, yes, they've heard it, but now it looks, doesn't it, like they've filed it away off to the side under jobs done, and now they're just getting on with the job of being good living, being respectable, keeping up appearance, appearances. Maybe the porn has been banished. And Covenant Eyes is on the phone and on the iPad and on the computer. And the streets are tidy and the children are starting to say, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. But they are not keeping the gospel. You see it, verse 3, they are not 
keeping it and repenting. They are not treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ in all his grace and goodness and beauty. If someone told them that, told this church, the church in Sardis, that they could keep living like this and get to heaven at the end, but Jesus himself wouldn't be there with them, then they would still want to go anyway. They're not in it for him. They're in it for what it does to their life and their standing in society and the way they can raise good-mannered, healthy children. No, they are not keeping on repenting for their sins. Not not keeping on coming back close to Christ, the only Savior. Sardis is becoming a nominal church, isn't it? A church in name only, not in reality. Sardis is no longer a place where sins are confessed to one another with tears of contrition. It, It is not a church where when the confession of sin is is reached in that moment of service where where you can almost feel people with two hands taking hold of Christ at last we've reached this moment where together i can say out loud lord i need you and i love you no this is a church where long ago people have stopped saying to one another do you know what i'm sorry i was wrong please forgive me they haven't said that to another fellow believer for years. This is, this is a church where the richer you are and the younger you are and the, the more you have and the more you have to give to the church, the more the church is then interested in you in return. This is a church where people care more about getting help for them becoming the best version of themselves than they do about learning that the best version of me isn't me. It's Jesus. This is a church where people no longer notice how full the church diary is and how busy and active it is, but how empty the prayer meeting remains. This is a church where the young people only attend if the event is just to their liking, exactly the way I want it and need things to be. It's a church where the older people are beginning to find the babies and the toddlers an irritation not a sign of God's covenant blessings alive in their midst. In other words, this is a church where the kind of gospel life that only Jesus gives is absent. There's life everywhere, but not gospel life. Life that welcomes the weak, the outcast, the lost, the unclean, the dirty, the unlovable, that lifts up the humble. No, instead, the kind of life in this church is the kind of life that the world gives, that the world loves, and it's starting to spread its tentacles from room to room in the church building. We want things done my way or the highway. We're going to prioritize what draws a crowd, what makes our church look successful. This is a church that has started well, but forgotten what it is that made it a church. A church that has forgotten what it received. This is a church, I think, isn't it? A church that is full of seed thrown from the pulpit that has landed on rocky ground or among thorns. Do you remember it? The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. They endure only for a while. 
or, or they're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches and the desires for other things eventually enters in and it chokes the word, chokes the word. And what does Jesus say? It proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful. It's got to be right, hasn't it? Isn't that what happened in verse 3? They have received and heard, but they are not keeping and treasuring and repenting. That's it, isn't it? That's what Jesus is looking for all the time. Fruit. Fruitfulness. Do you remember John the Baptist to God's people, the start of the Lord's public ministry? What does John the Baptist say as Jesus prepares to come? He, he warns the nation of Israel, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you belong to him. So, so show me, where's the fruit? No fruit face judgment, says John. Do an about turn, repent, go after him, go after the Messiah that God has sent. Let Jesus turn your life around, live for him and speak for him and die for him. Let every single part of your life be shaped by him and because of that, bear fruit for him. John the Baptist's warning fell, didn't it, on deaf ears. Israel, God's people, A.D. 70, Jerusalem, what happened? It was raised to the ground. Why? Because God sent his son to look for fruit. To look for fruit and no fruit was found. The axe came. Did you know that the city of Sardis had a reputation for being impregnable? A city made of granite, stone. It was thought to be secure. And it thought itself to be safe, but twice in wartime, Sardis was taken, not by, not by outright military aggression, it was captured by stealth, taken by surprise, probably at night time. I think that's why here to Sardis, the Lord Jesus uses this picture, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I don't think this is talking about the second coming of Christ, the end of time. It's, it's, it's the Lord saying disaster can fall upon a church at any time. The, the thief rarely calls at midday in June, does he? He rarely comes in broad daylight with the sun on full display and light everywhere. He doesn't send you an invite for your calendar to put it in ahead of time. No, if you ignore the repeated warnings to be safe, to lock your doors, to get an alarm, to be insured. If you ignore the warnings, he comes. Brothers and sisters today, I have a very simple job, don't I? It's, it's simple. The, the words are here in front of us this morning. Am I repenting? Are you repenting? And is there fruit? You know, what one wise old believer said, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. What he meant is that repentance is not something I did when I was 23 or 14 when I first became a Christian or whatever it was, that I did that once. That's me in the kingdom. Repentance done. No, repentance is something I do every single day. It's, it's the only thing I have in my hands as I come close to Christ. It's all I can offer him ever until I die. 
Martin Luther in the Reformation, he nailed 95 theses nailed to the door of Wittenberg. Theses number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Almost 30 years later, when he died, the world had been turned on its head. His name would echo down through the centuries, maybe forever in God's loving kindness to his church. 30 years later, his last written words found on a scrap of paper were, we are beggars. This is true. Daily repentance, daily gratitude to God, daily, daily sorrow for my sin, my sin, more than somebody else's sin against me. It is, it is one of the, the primary markers, isn't it, of real spiritual life. Other people's sins against me are like that. The closer I get to Christ, other people's wrongs against me shrink. The closer I get to him, my wrongs and sins against him and against others grows. I see myself truly. Repentance is the Christian's constant posture. Do you, do you hate sin more on the 28th of February 2021 than you did in 2020? Do you hate it more this year than you did five years ago? Or have you struck a deal with it in some area of your life? Called a truce in one particular area. J.C. Ryle, who I love, said, Let every returning birthday find us hating sin more. Let us never forget that to be content with sitting in the congregation and hearing sermons. We want to say to him, wouldn't we? Well, there's lockdown. Let us never forget that to be content with listening to sermons online while we bear no fruit is conduct that is most offensive to God. Where God gives spiritual privileges, like a church like Sardis, you've received the gospel. Where God gives spiritual privileges, he looks for proportionate returns. Am I growing in grace or standing still? Is the handbrake on? Sit and look at the fruit of the Spirit. Open Galatians 5 and 6. Read through what the life of the Spirit looks like and pray for those fruit to hang from the branches of your life in every corner of every part of who you are. Are those fruit there? Do you love them and long for them? Point number three, recognize the problem, receive the warning. Number three, realize the promise. Realize here the promise that is in these verses. Verse four, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. We've heard the Lord Jesus do this already, haven't we? In the earlier letters, he addresses the whole church, and then he says, yes, that's to all of you, but then there are some. There, there are a few There are still a few here in Sardis who are not unclean. You have still a few names. Churches are complex organisms, aren't they? 
And sometimes in the midst of so much death, nevertheless there is life. Gospel life can remain in a church no matter how far gone it is. I I know of an elderly couple in Northern Ireland who stayed in one particular church, stayed in it for nearly 20 years while they watched it go downhill and decline. And oh, they lived with the pain of their precious church, the gospel no longer sounding from its pulpit, children no longer growing up in their midst to know and love Christ. And they stayed and they prayed and they longed for gospel life to return. And they spoke up all the time for the Bible and for the gospel and for Christ. No, let's not do that. Let's, let's do this instead. They spoke up for what is true and right and they refused to compromise. Well, the, the, the measure of life in a church, friends, is not its size, not its activity, but, but its closeness to, to Jesus. And where we hold on to closeness to Christ and where we refuse to compromise with the world outside the church or even sometimes the harder route, refuse to compromise with the world inside the church. When we do that, then there is a promise held out to us. Look look what the Lord says. They will walk with me. They will walk with me in white. The promise is that if you clean yourself with the gospel, one day the Lord Jesus will clean you completely. He will wash us completely. If you stay close to him, he will stay close to you. So I want to encourage you today, my dear Trinity Church family, uh, as all these seven letters do, I, I want to put courage into your hearts. I want to put strength into our limbs. Our limbs are weak at the minute, aren't they? We're uh, atrophying through lockdown and underuse. I want to put courage into our limbs to stand tall and fast for Christ. Do not compromise, friends. Do not compromise with the world around you. Do not compromise what you believe about God and Jesus and the Bible, about heaven and hell. And here it is in our day, the big issue, of course, the big issue of the hour. Do not compromise with what the Lord Jesus himself taught us about God and sex and marriage, gender identity in a fallen world. It is the big issue, isn't it? The Lord says, be whole in what you think. Be be clean in what you think. It's a beautiful image, isn't it, in verse 4? They have not soiled their garments. We we love being clean, don't we, most of us? I think we all do. The the shower, the bath, the, the freshly washed clothes. The only way to be clean is to stick to what Jesus says is clean and right and true. And when we stay close to what he says is clean and right and true, then we stay close to him himself. One of the defining marks of a nominal church, a church that is a church in name, not nature, is that it comes to believe what the world believes on all the big issues of the day. It longs to fit in and to not be offensive. And the irony is that in bending over backwards to fit in and not stand out, that church no longer has anything distinctive to say, does it? The more relevant we try to be, the less relevant we actually become. Because we look the same as everything and everyone else. 
The more we seek a popular reputation, the more we are planting the seeds of our own demise and death. Oh, the, 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 the principle of spiritual life is so different. The essence of spiritual life is spirit-wrought, spirit-given, closeness to Jesus, nothing else. That is the essence of spiritual life. See how, see how this letter to Sardis opens? These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven stars. Chapter one, remember the, 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 these stars in Christ's hand represent, seem to represent seven angels who somehow look after each of these seven churches. We don't know much more than that about them. But the seven spirits, that, that, remember seven, the number of completeness, fullness, wholeness. This is a way of referring to the Holy Spirit in all his perfect fullness, all his completeness. Do you see what the Lord Jesus is saying? These are the words of him who measures spiritual life by the Spirit of God, not by the activities of man, not by programs and people, but by the kind of repentance and humility that only God's Spirit can bring about. Oh, it is the fundamental mark of true spiritual life that it comes only from God himself only from the Spirit. And what that spiritual life looks like is the simple desire to be with Jesus. To be with Him. To to walk with Him. To live with Him. Friends, that is all I have to give you today. The whole sermon comes down to one simple thing, doesn't it? Do I want to be with Him? To walk with Him. To live with Him for him, to be like him, to love him. Do you know, in our house, there's a very simple way to get the kids out of bed in the morning. It's hard to do it in the week when it's a school morning. But if we want to, there is a very simple way to wake up four children. Whatever time we need to do it, it's to say to them, wake up Here's where we're going and put in front of them their, their favorite place on earth. And we're going there together as a family. Get up. You're coming with me on a special adventure. We're off to Portugal. We're off to Devon. We're going somewhere together. And because they want to be with me or with whoever it is they get to go with. Ah, it's different. Up they get. We will walk with him in white. I will confess their name before my father and before his angels. I will never blot his name out of my book of life. Our friends, that permanent presence of Christ, being with him forever, begins now in our desire to be with him, to live for him and walk with him all our days. So may it be true of me and of you and of all of us together. In Christ's name, amen.